Welcome to the Enneagram with Chelsea and Nico L. Today we're talking about how the Enneagram fits into the real world. So taking a step back, we've been kind of laying the landscape and the foundation for how this concept is so big and it's so powerful and has a lot of beautiful complexity. And to all of you who are charting this course with us, you may be starting to wonder, how does this become reality? How does this big, different opportunity fit into the day-to-day -day that we experience in our real lives. And so today we're going to unpack that a little bit and we're going to hit it head on by starting with just how different it is because of the cultures that we live in. So how is the Enneagram countercultural? That's a really great question. And I think that it's interesting that you're asking that, Chelsea, because I think you know me. <laughs> you're asking it in a way that maybe um, fits my particular um, values. And so I'll say that at first, because I do think that maybe it's unclear, what does it mean to be countercultural? And I, and I suppose how I'm interpreting that question is that there's a certain ways that we are socially conditioned, you know, in our American culture, since that's where you and I come from. We, I feel that we've been conditioned to um, look for uh, tips and tricks. And our culture in general is impatient. And we, um, we like speed, uh, convenience, um, comfort. And um, the Enneagram and most tools for growth, most activities for growth are, uh, <laughs> are not quick. <laughs> so that's the part that I think I'm referring to. They're, they're generally require work and time, and also a comprehensiveness that isn't, um, can't be reduced into a tip or trick. And so I, I, I feel like there's a place for tips and trick. And you've heard me say this before that sometimes, you know, prescriptive kind of short answers, you know, are places to start. But what the Enneagram actually offers in its totality is something far more comprehensive and complex and nuanced, which requires more attention and energy to, to engage. And that's different than I think what, what we're, what we're used to. And what I think, like I said, what we're conditioned to seek out. Yeah. Does that answer? Like, is that kind of where you're going with that? Absolutely, in part. And also, you know, we were laughing at the beginning because we worked together for so long. I think there's like this essence of disruption that you and I both value highly. And, and the Enneagram has been a path and a framework for me to disrupt the status quo in a really healthy way because that the framework supersedes much of what's out there that people are engaging and doing their best to kind of fit square, you know, square pegs and round holes, working mm -hmm. with what they've got, understandably so. And so I think about the Enneagram being countercultural in the way that it is really disruptive to what people are used to. And the majority of that, I think, stems from how malleable it is. So if we can further expand on the complexity and give examples, because one thing I think that we have an opportunity to add to the conversation is our culture's desire for certainty. And when you give me a test I can take, boxes that I can fit people into, everything starts to feel like it can be in control. And that's not what the Enneagram is. It does give you know, ourselves the self-awareness and working within interpersonal dynamics a lot of certainty 
um, and predictability, I think, is a better word. Yeah, no, no, and I actually say that it's less uh, certainty and it's more clarity. It's clarity and also the predictability is something that um, has a a flavor of of certainty. (laughs) Because, but what's interesting about it, and this is what I have said before, is that when we're not aligned and when we're um, not very well adjusted and we're disintegrated, we're very predictable and um, and much more and the outcomes of our dysfunction or disintegration is more certain. The more integrated we are and the more well-adjusted we are, the less predictable we are. And the possibility therefore is very expansive in a way that is less certain, but also in a really good way less certain because the possibility increases as our expansiveness increases and we don't know where those things will lead to, but it's much more in a positive uh, vertical. (laughs) So I think that I love how you brought this up, you know, the the reduction element and then this kind of need for certainty. I love, and we've talked about how predictable humans can be in their stress response, right? In disintegration, because their operating type and their fears that are linked to that operating type. But the other thing about moving towards integration or growth and being less of your type, right? Your type as a default starting place, but we're all nine types. That's interesting to me because I wonder about the possibility that it leads for not just personal growth, but adaptability, resilience. Do you think any of those things are linked to Um, more integration and a less predictable outcome when you're no longer responding from your fears? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is why we we're doing this is to actually kind of um, reveal uh, how resiliency and um, is, is directly tied to a quality of life, I guess I'd say is that, and this is part of, what you brought up in terms of being maybe countercultural is that um, humans, you know, there's two things that are, there's many things that are happening simultaneously, right? Two that I'll pick out right now is that, you know, our pain, our level of pain discomfort is typically tied to our level of development. And, um, and it doesn't mean that the the more well-developed we are, that we don't experience pain, but the pain is different. There's the pain from growing, which is like, you know, getting in the gym and, you know, we're suffering a little bit as it's, you know, difficult to lift the amount of weights that, you know, our muscles aren't, you know, adjusted to lift yet. There's a pain in that, you know, because that's, that requires resistance. And then there's also the pain from, from, from being dysfunctional, from where there's something wrong. So there's two kinds of pain and resiliency is about being able to understand and identify which is which and then also be able, the resiliency is, is primarily in my mind, when I use resiliency, it's how quickly we're able to self-correct. And that requires a, a wholly different kind of intelligence of ourselves, uh, the circumstances that we're in and others. So th- there's a complexity in the layers here. And instead of trying to solve um, our own anxiety, which is you know the opposite of being resilient, because we're trying to, to maintain a state of comfort and to get rid of whatever pain, and we're not actually aware of what kind of pain, where it's coming from, what's the source of our anxiety. We don't have, we, you know, many people don't have the uh, skills. And so the Enneagram is, is a tool to help us develop these skills so that we can parse out 
what kind of pain, where it's sourced, and we can self-correct and understand all this in the context of the things that we um, have been conditioned for that aren't useful, like our kind of addiction to certainty and security and uh, reducing things to, to make them simple and understandable. So this is kind of the scope of, of this is the landscape, Chelsea, of, of the Enneagram and, and the work and the work that that we're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, I can't help but think about resiliency or grit. Um, there's a lot of different words that I hear corporations use as part of their core values. And I think the gist of what they're trying to get to is no matter what comes your way, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going. Man, do we really want to go through more and more pain and suffering so we can build resilience, right? And what you've shared gives us a way of thinking about what resilience is from a really healthy perspective and not just kind of gritting your teeth and taking on more of it. Another thing that's tied to what we also talked about in terms of disruption is the ability to take risks. And so when I think about resiliency and ambiguity and all the changes coming our way, and I also think about status quo, when I think about resilience, it's like, oh, it's not doing more of the same. It's actually fighting the good fight, I think, in some ways. And so when I think about taking risks, I know that my ability to cultivate resiliency came parallel to my increase in number of risks that I was willing to take. And it was because I was no longer operating out of a place of my core fear and trying to stay safe and stay comfortable. So as I was building resilience, I was inviting more risk into my decision-making, into my strategies. And I was then at the same time, more equipped to handle those risks because I was growing on this path towards, I guess, further integration. And do you hear that from other people or? No, I mean, this, these are the, and I love that you're actually framing all this in, in, in the, the elements that, that are going against the, the cultural conditioning that we have. And risk, as you know, <laughs> is one of my core kind of tenets. But to be you know, specific about it, it's not risk for risk's sake. So risk for me is, 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 is evaluating where we can take intelligent risks. So if you're just risking all the time, you know, that's not super smart, but to risk, you know, not at all uh, is also not smart. So intelligent risk really requires this kind of evaluation, the, the competency to see um, and locate where's the source of our resistance. And uh, this is this is a this is a little bit more complex because is is it be is it because something circumstantially is not healthy? Is it because our fears were being stopped by certain unhealthy fears? And th this is this is what we're working with: is healthy risk, unhealthy risk, um, external risk, internal risk. Th they're different. So courage actually comes into play here because um, sometimes when it's about internally taking a risk, that requires courage. External risk is more strategic. You know, where are places that we can push against to um, to test and to discover and to explore? And that's also a little bit countercultural. Um, risk is required to explore. You can't, you know, exploring requires us to do things that we're not necessarily ordinarily doing because we're trying to find new things and, and, and discover new places. 
So this is, again, I mean, I, this is a conversation of, of trying to actually expose the landscape in which we're working. And it's not um, so singular. Yeah. Part of what you as a partner have helped me to to do is really around decision intelligence and thinking in a totally different way. And the cool thing about what you just shared with risking and pushing the boundaries all from the spirit of exploration and to learn and to test is that in taking those risks within corporate context, it's allowed me to accelerate my velocity to finding out what was really the linchpin, what was the backbone, what was the underlying what was happening, whether it was a culture or leadership. And so by taking really smart, calculated risks, but doing so much sooner, I've been able to push boundaries and either break through with really positive wins really quick with well-orchestrated or well-thought-through strategies. And I've also been able to accelerate the velocity to understanding oh, this might not be a fit. Either way, wouldn't you rather have that information, you know, potentially years sooner than if you were kind of just a passive recipient of what the culture or whatever it is that you're, you're up against? This is well said. <laughs> and there's a lot of, and we're dealing with, the, we're dealing with human systems. Um, I think what people will find um, is and, and the Enneagram is one, another one tool that exposes this art exposes this relationships expose this is that kind of the deepest truths, the things that are most transformative are usually inside a paradox. And the paradox that I'm pointing to with you and your uh, expression that you just had was that you're talking about velocity and speed. <laughs> and it's something that we value as a culture is speed. But when we're after speed as the end, as something that we're using, we actually reduce the speed because if we're going after speed, we're skipping all of the things. But speed can be the result of other things, which is what you're describing. So what happens as a result of doing things differently, of thinking differently, of having more expansive approaches, you actually get speed. You know, you get to places faster, you discover more quickly, and you're actually able to adjust more quickly, which is, and this is the paradox. So it's not that I, I'm not anti-speed and my personality type is, is, is particularly impatient. <laughs> so it's more of like, how do we intelligently end up using the tools that we have in order to um, become something different? And that is a different kind of goal. And, and this is, this is also a part of the process is becoming is the goal and that's a more, uh, complicated process. And, um, it's not any one, it's not any one thing that we're going after and, and we're used to kind of identifying one thing. Well, where are you inefficient and where's, you know, where can we work? And it's never just one thing. And, and, and if you make it one thing, then we often miss and, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, not often, we usually, you know, yeah, we typically miss. So yeah, I, I, I like it that you brought up velocity uh, because I do think it exists usually in the context of a paradox. Most virtues and really powerful results do. 